welcome to the South Asian Occupational Therapy Experience. I have a special episode today um, where I will be talking with Sonia of Narika about domestic violence and mental health in the South Asian community. So Sonia, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Sure. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, my name is Sonia. I am community engagement lead at Narika. Uh, so Narika is a 501c3 nonprofit, which supports survivors of domestic violence, especially those of South Asian descent in uh, the broader Bay Area. Um, so really, my entire job is really having conversations about domestic violence because we don't have them enough and making sure we're raising awareness so that our survivors can reach out to us for help if they need it. How can people find out more about Narika? So you can just find everything you need to know on our website or our social media. So that's www.narika.org and that's N-A-R-I-K-A.org. And all of our information, all of our upcoming events, resources, uh, and questions about our programs can be found there. Thank you. And so Sonia and I um, have met before and we have been chatting back and forth because on Sunday, May 23rd, we are going to be doing a free event with Narika. And um, the idea of the event is we're going to be doing an active relaxation together. Uh, we're going to learn how to basically get in touch with our bodies, help relax our minds, um, and we are going to be doing this together. And that is going to be free. And I will make sure to include the links um, at the bottom of the show notes. And um, as well, there is an opportunity to donate if you are able, if you're able to attend the event um, and donate. Is there anything else that you want to add to that, Sonia? I'm, I'm very excited. It's open to the community. Anyone can come, um, women, men, survivor, not survivor, um, it's, it's some, you know, I think relaxation, resilience, these are all things that all of us could benefit from, especially now. So I do encourage uh, anyone who's even on the fence about it just to attend. Yes. And you don't have to be South Asian. Again, this is just a, a event to help you engage in some self-care, learn a tool that you can take away with you. Um, and um, it's being offered by Narika. So if you'd like to support them, that would be greatly appreciated, but you do not have to donate um, to attend. All right, so let's get like right into um, domestic violence. I think um, some of the most important things to address are like, what do people think domestic violence is and what are some things that we're not missing that we're not aware of? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think what people think domestic violence is, is prominently physical abuse. So uh, they think, oh, a husband slaps his wife maybe once and then she calls the police and then there's a domestic violence report. Um, that's kind of the traditional narrative. And we see that a lot on television as well. Um, that's always a question that's asked, oh, did he hit you? Is that, is that what happened? But what domestic violence actually is, is a very extended pattern of abuse that's used to uh, maintain power and control over an intimate partner. And this can be uh, any gender, any relationship really, but most commonly it's uh, from a man to a woman and they're in some kind of intimate relationship, whether it's boyfriend, girlfriend relationship or husband, wife relationship, but it can happen to any gender, any sexual orientation um, and any kind of relationship. 
Um, and I would even say uh, it's kind of a myth that physical abuse is the central kind of role that might take place. Uh, physical abuse is uh, prominent and does happen, but there's also emotional abuse and verbal abuse. There's financial abuse, tech abuse, even medical abuse, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. Um, but there's basically a lot of different ways that an abuser can control their partner uh, in a lot of very nefarious ways. Um, that people aren't aware of. And these things can happen over a long period of time. It's not, it's not a single incident. And oftentimes it takes a survivor many years to realize what's happening and seek help. And so Narika actually offers a lot of supports to not just um, help people identify what's going on and create safety plans, but actually navigate their way through some of these abusive systems. You know, um, two of the two that stuck out to me that I'm familiar with are um, emotional abuse and the financial, um, I'm not sure if financial abuse is the right word, but there's like a, you know, financial manipulation, right? Where you're dependent Absolutely. on somebody because of finances. And then the third one, which I'm actually not familiar with is tech tech abuse. So I, I would love to hear more, but um, what are some, some services or even some ways that Narika helps people get out of some of these um, domestic violence situations that we're not as commonly hearing or, or hearing about or used to? Yeah, so Narika helps in a very holistic manner. So that's something that I think sets us apart. Uh, we're not kind of an agency that just responds to one specific aspect, like, oh, a factory, here's your problem, like we'll turn out some specific results. Uh, really, we meet with every survivor and we discuss what their holistic needs are. And sometimes that's not even leaving the relationship. That's actually something that um, it may not be as common as one would think. Um, so first we start with, okay, are you, are you safe? For example, uh, can we come up with a safety plan? Uh, do we need to get you to an emergency hotel or, or a shelter? Do you have your documents? For example, a lot of abusers will confiscate uh, their partners, um, like bank account information and their identity cards and passports, uh, making it difficult for them to uh, separate from the abuser. So do you have access to all the things that you need, like food, money, medication, and identification so that you can leave? Uh, then uh, once they're in a safe location, that's when we talk about next steps. So do you want to leave the relationship? Uh, do you want to divorce? And what is your immigration status? Because a lot of times our, our survivors are immigrants. They're tied to their own abuser as a visa sponsor. Uh, so that's another conversation. Um, what is your immigration status? And do we want to help you fight for a green card to remain in this country with your children? Uh, so I would say those are the prominent uh, kind of initial concerns. So housing and shelter and finances, uh, legal advocacy and um, immigration. After that, and kind of during this, that's when we are usually enrolling our survivors in wellness programs so that they can just get to a position of relative emotional stability and be able to handle the trauma that they've experienced and build the confidence and awareness they need to face the next steps in life, oftentimes alone or as a single mother. Uh, and then, of course, we also have our job training and financial empowerment programs, because that's really the long term uh, safety measure that our survivors can take so that they don't ever have to return to their abuser because they have no home or they have no money and they can't take care of themselves. Uh, so we help our survivors get jobs um, and then just learn more about how to be financially independent. Wow, I have I have so many questions, um, but um it sounds like you're working with people long-term, right? These aren't quick fixes. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, Narika helps the survivor as long as they need. And we find that our survivors often stick with us for over three years. And even uh, with this pandemic, uh, we had survivors who had been in a relative position of safety come back uh, and then come stay with us for another year and, and um, because they needed some more help and more services. Uh, so this is really a long-term path to safety, wellness, and empowerment. Um, there's This is not something that just can happen in a few years or after just a, a few counseling sessions or even just after getting divorced, whatever it may be. Uh, the, the trauma, the PTSD, uh, the financial strain is something that lasts uh, for many, many years. Uh, but we're there sticking with them, you know, holding their hand through it all as long as they need. Yeah, I mean, some a lot of these patterns of abuse are cyclical, right? Things get better. Um, people think their situation has improved. They might even, if if they want to, willing to, they're able to get away from their situation, um, and they're kind of reeled back in for for various reasons. Um, so it's it's great that you offer the long term support. Um, you mentioned yeah. COVID, so you know that is something um, that a lot of us that haven't experienced um, domestic violence don't realize um, how much privilege we have to be able, to, those of us that have been able to shelter in place and stay at home. And so, you know, um, I don't know any of the statistics offhand, but everything that I've heard about um, domestic violence situations is that things have escalated, things have, have gotten worse, people have needed a lot more support because they are stuck at home with their abusers. So what have you seen? Yeah, that, exactly what you've said is what we've seen, but threefold. Uh, it's It's been really stark, the contrast pre-pandemic and during the pandemic and still ongoing um, at Narika. So uh, first of all, many of our survivors lost their jobs. And these were survivors who are either still with their abuser or even had left their abuser long ago and were at a position of relative safety. They had lost their jobs and then that their only economic uh, income basically. And we're again afloat. What do I do? Do I go back to my abuser who has a roof over his head? Uh, do I try and find another job? No one's hiring. Uh, so our, we really ramped up our our seed job training program. So offering one-on-one -on -one support for our survivors and just trying to upskill them so they can find better paying, more stable jobs. Because those of us at home sitting at our computer, that, that you're right, that is a luxury. Uh, but the reality is that a lot of people don't have those kinds of jobs. Uh, but then even there's those survivors who do work at home or do stay at home because that's what you're supposed to do during a pandemic. But uh, whereas we consider that, you know, a, a safe haven, home is safety from the dangers of the outside world and the coronavirus, um, staying indoors poses a very real and often more physical and dangerous threat um, that is not visible to the outside world. So you're absolutely right that, uh, instances of domestic violence have increased a lot and a lot of shelters as well have been overburdened or been unable to take in new clients uh, because of the of fear of the virus as well. So a lot of survivors have been left at home and un are unable to seek help because the person who's abusing them is right there next to them. They can't make a phone call, they can't leave and call Narika, right? It's much harder. Um, so we've seen calls to our helpline actually triple, which has been um, quite, uh, quite stark. Um, and that's even with the survivors who are able to make that call in the first place. We're very aware that the abuse, uh, the levels of abuses are much higher. Um, There's still many people who don't know that we exist and who don't know that what they're experiencing and don't know how to get help. 
So, you know, there's a lot that I, I do want to talk about. I'm sure we'll go back and forth, but, you know, just how are people supposed to get help, right? When they are locked in with their abusers, you mentioned that they don't have a safe place to go to make a phone call. So how are people supposed to find help, seek help, ask for help when they're, they're trapped? That's a great question. So actually one of the great strategies that we've uh, employed for outreach uh, during the pandemic was a restroom flyer. Uh, so we created this flyer, um, you know, flyers where you can rip off the tab and it has a phone number. So we've started putting them in public restrooms in religious institutions and grocery stores and other public restrooms at parks, for example, uh, because we noticed that these were the very few places that usually a woman or any survivor were, would be able to frequent without their abuser. Um, for example, if, if the abuser is working from home or, or at work or just at home, he might make the survivor do some of the errands. So if the survivor goes to the restroom, they can see that pamphlet on, on the door and then they have a uh, a place to call us right there and, and the place to reach us right there. We've also increased or really stepped up our partnerships with local community organizations. Um, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more, but a lot of South Asians, they will keep things in the family or talk to their religious leader before they turn to anyone else. Uh, so we strengthened those relationships. So those community organizations, the community centers, the religious organizations know that they can refer clients to us uh, when they come to them. Yeah, those are, I mean, you really have to like think about if you're in that situation, how you can, how you can get help. And, you know, I, I've noticed just in general and because all of your services, I believe are free, right? Absolutely. 100% free and yeah. confidential. And so there's that gap of how do we get people that need these services to access them? And obviously with domestic violence, there's a unique situation of like safety is, is paramount. And so people often can't access because of safety. Um, and then especially within the South Asian community, it's um, like the, what are people going to say? thing. Like, so, um, you know, can you address um any, any differences, anything that make us unique um, when it comes to domestic violence, um, accessing services, even talking about it. You mentioned some people talk to family, some people talk to their religious leaders, um, but I think shame is kind of an overarching theme um, in, in all um, South Asian um, cultures in that there are some things that we don't wanna share with our families because we feel like we did something wrong. Absolutely. There's, uh, we could spend hours talking about the cultural issues um, at stake here. Um, but yes, you mentioned stigma. I think that's a really big reason why survivors don't reach out for help um, or even recognize that what they're experiencing is abuse because there's so little conversation. There's not even really uh, the words in some languages for what, what this is. It's just not something we talk about. Um, and I think there's this perception that stigma is, is contagious, that if, you know, the woman does something wrong or someone does something wrong, then the entire family's image is, is suffers as a result. And then other families will not associate with us. And then our entire community is fractured uh, over this one issue. And then all of the burden blame is placed on the victim when she is the one who has been abused um, by, by her abuser who will likely face no consequences or maybe you know a small finger wagging from an elder. That's usually the extent that it reaches. 
Um, but it's absolutely very, it's, it's absolutely a huge public concern um, that is often ignored in our communities and kept in whispers. And that has severely damaged uh, our survivors' ability to seek services um, when they're here. They're here for free. They're here specifically for you, for you, the person who's suffering. Um, so it's absolutely something that we all need to work together as a community to address and make sure we're speaking up when we see something even if it's a small thing, even if it's just a small comment uh, or a joke uh, that we speak up and say something and, and, and that people are aware that it's not okay um, and really support those. If someone says that they're experiencing something, uh, listen to them. Don't ask them why questions, don't doubt them, um, don't make them question their reality. Listen to them, uh, believe them, acknowledge what they're saying and help them uh, find the services that they need. Do you have um, any suggestions or maybe even what are you doing to break the stigma um, and provide some of that education? Because, um, you know, there's a difference between being a South Asian back home um, and then being um, being in the diaspora. Right. We know, um, you know, we're both in the Bay Area, but anybody in the, the U.S., we know that domestic violence is wrong. We know that actually, um, especially um, physical abuse is something that, that can be um, prosecuted. Um, but um, I think it's almost normalized in some places. Um, back in South Asia, you know, you hear stories. I mean, you hear some really terrible stories, right? Some of these end, um, end in um, the death of, of a partner. But um, these are common occurrences. Um, you know, back home. And so here we know that you're not supposed to do it. So sometimes we don't bring it up because we don't want to get somebody in trouble. But back home for maybe generations, there has been domestic abuse in our families. People may not have talked about it, but it's been normalized. If people have seen it, they just kind of ignore it as like, that's just what happens, right? Um, typically, again, the man is allowed to um, abuse his wife because she did something wrong or she didn't do something properly. Like we've we've seen and heard those stories. Um, and I, in my opinion, I don't think any anybody I've heard has made a really big deal about it. Yeah, it's absolutely uh, a huge concern in South Asia, but also in the diaspora too. Uh, that's something that we've noticed is that a lot of these cultural attitudes don't even change when you come here, even after many years here. Uh, in fact, there's some psychological term for this, um, intergenerational cultural something, I don't know. Someone can Google it, but uh, essentially when you move to another place, you carry the same traditions and cultural values that existed in the place that you're coming from. And that often doesn't change even when you're moving to a radically different place. Um, so really the only thing that we can do is talk about as much as possible and blow things up and really address things as much as possible when we see it happening, either online or in person. Uh, the other thing that we're doing is uh, starting our new youth prevention program, which is coming up this year and next year. Uh, but it's really empowering our young people. So everywhere from middle schoolers, high schoolers, young adults to understand healthy relationships and what is the difference between toxic behavior and abusive behavior, um, things like consent and empowerment uh, and how to support others. So that's absolutely something that's going to at least help slowly over time is empowering our youth to step up and make those cultural changes because the older you get, the, the more kind of rigid things, things are. And um, you can shove something in someone's face and even still they, they'll refuse to name it as abuse. Um, so speaking on podcasts like this is another way to do it. Just get the name out there. It's abuse and it shouldn't be happening.
Yeah, I, I appreciate that you are, um, in my head, I think of it as like starting early in the pipeline, right? Like not only, um, I mean, look at what what's happened this past year, right? Like our youth are the ones that have been organizing, that have been speaking up, um, that have yeah. been actually making real change happen. And so, um, you know, these youth can speak up um, for their parents. They can call things out. Um, they can actually call and ask for help as well, right? Because, um, you know, unfortunately, a lot of this happens in, in front of kids. It's happening to their parents in front of their kids. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I think that's absolutely wonderful. And um, for me, the next question is really connecting it to mental health, right? Um, thinking of kids that have witnessed this abuse alone and, you know, it's a lot of responsibility, right? Um, so um, what are some areas of, of mental health um, that you address? And then also, you know, tying that into to South Asian culture, that is yet another area of stigma, right? We don't put ourselves first, our community comes first, and um, we don't even often like to talk about ourselves and what's going on. So um, how do you tie um, mental health into the support that you're providing? Yeah, so wellness programs and events like the one that we're hosting coming up, a really big part of our programming uh, because oftentimes, uh, especially when you're immigrant or low income, uh, as you mentioned, you don't dedicate time to yourself or for things like uh, wellness practices, like meditation, uh, because you're so focused on the grind that comes from life. And, and as being an immigrant, like all of the things that you need to do to keep your house uh, stable and to earn money um, that you don't have accrued, like other people who have lived in the U.S. forever or wherever it may be forever do have. So um, there's not even really as kind of like domestic violence, a language around mental health. Like you, you could probably ask people uh, about depression, anxiety, and they probably would be like, oh, you know, I'm just, I'm just tired or something like it's, there's just not the language around it. So that's something that we very much encourage is counseling for, for our clients. Uh, we do offer free counseling for all of our clients. And then also our support groups, because it's really important for especially our South Asian women to understand that there are others like them because they always feel so alone because no one talks about it. Um, they just they feel like the, there's the weight of the world on their shoulders and they're, they're oftentimes experiencing PTSD and trauma depression, anxiety, a whole host of issues as a result of the abuse. So having the support groups is a really good space for them to have some community, which they feel they often feel they have lost as a result of what's happened to them. The other part is wellness events. Um, so like the one we're, we're hosting, and those are always open to the community. Most of them are open to the community as well, uh, because we know that there are people who are experiencing abuse, but don't know that they're experiencing abuse. So this is a way of kind of reaching out to the larger community and then also talking a little bit about domestic violence kind of at the end, so that those who showed up because they're feeling tired or whatever it is, um, can learn, oh, you know, am I tired or am I experiencing something really serious as a result of something my partner might be doing? So a lot of our community wellness events are also in some part educational or outreach based uh, to reach people who may be experiencing abuse. Yeah, and what you mentioned about feeling tired or even just feeling it in our body. So for South Asians and Asians, that is very common. So it, like everything that you said, you know, resonates with me personally as well. And, and I have seen it. Um, so 
We don't have the vocabulary <laughs> in our languages. We don't talk about um, mental health, um, but the kind of Western idea of mental health care or psychiatric symptoms or you know whatever it is, um, that doesn't necessarily um, show up the same way um, for us that are South Asian or um, even I think the, the greater um, Asian experiences is, is pretty similar. We often have physical symptoms. And so you do feel not just tired, but you might feel back pain. You might feel um, other, other physical symptoms rather than recognizing that I'm, I'm feeling depressed, I'm feeling anxious or whatever, it looks different. So kind of the criteria that, that you have to be diagnosed for some of these conditions, it doesn't show up the same for us. Um, and then when you have experienced trauma, um, obviously um, any, any form of domestic abuse is likely to result um, in, in trauma for you. Um, they're often, especially if you're not getting the help that you need and you're you're stuck in that situation, there's often a disconnect between the body as well, right? Um, yeah, and so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so sometimes you, you're not even aware of what's going on with you um, physically. Um, and so that that takes a long-term toll and, and um, you know, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do this active relaxation where we are connecting with our body so that, you know, it's like you can actually physically take better care of your body and that will help your emotional health as well, because we don't have the tools. We don't have the language. Um, a lot of us don't have the understanding of how am I supposed to tackle all these emotional issues? Um, it might be a little bit easier to just start with your body, um, and connecting with it and learning what is going on, what might it need, what feels good, what doesn't feel good, um, can actually in turn, um, affect your, your emotional health. So I, I appreciate that you brought that up and I wanted to ask about the, the support groups, um, and the counseling that you offer, um, are those South Asian providers or, you know, South Asian peers that are providing that support? Yes, we definitely prioritize. Obviously, there's uh, a, there's sometimes a scarcity of, of I'm sure you're aware of South Asian <laughs> therapy, especially uh, you know specifically culturally responsive and trauma informed care. Uh, but we do have a list of providers that we refer to um, who are experts in this kind of response, uh, and they support our survivors. Um, and I, I also wanted to talk a little bit more. You were talking about uh, the link between mental health and physical health. Um, there's, I don't know the exact statistic, but there is such a high prevalence of chronic um, back pain, as you mentioned, but also chronic diseases that show up um, in survivors of domestic violence who have also are experiencing PTSD. Um, so that's another good example of the long-term uh, effects of domestic violence. Again, it's not something that's ever really totally cured. Um, and it's something that could rear its head back at a survivor many, many years down the road. These chronic conditions that are born from many, many years of, of anxiety and uh, abuse that someone experiences. Yeah, unfortunately, in the United States, all of our PTSD, um, like all of the studies, all of the information is really based on um, like post-war. Um, so you're looking at um, data from veterans, which are typically men. Um, and so, you know, there, there's a whole population of people that are, are really, all that is being ignored. So when I talk about trauma, yes, it is. You're, you will likely be experiencing PTSD. And that's something that unfortunately, you know, you, you carry um, 
with you forever. But if you are able to seek help, um, if you are able to find ways to take better care of yourself and, you know, engage in some of these like self-care activities, most everything that I offer, it's like free stuff that you can do for yourself at home and you don't need anybody else to help you with. You really can mitigate those effects, um, of trauma and in turn, um, not have like, like you said, the, the chronic health effects. So chronic stress, chronic, um, chronic PTSD, a hundred percent affects you physically. And, um, unfortunately people don't really talk about it and we definitely don't talk about it in the South Asian community. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's also this, um, idea for, or this cultural sense that for South Asian women, uh, that resilience is, uh, something that means kind of a, taking on pain or just kind of absorbing pain or just um, dealing with things. Uh, so like to show forbearance uh, is something that uh, despite issues is something that is lauded as a good trait in a woman. Like, oh, y- y- your husband might, okay, maybe he was mean to you. Like, it's okay. Just, it just, you know, deal with it, move on. It'll, it, you'll be better for it uh, despite what's happened to you. Um, these things will get better. They'll resolve. Just think positively. Um, there's this idea that if you just deal with it, it'll get better and you're stronger for it, uh, a better woman because of it. And I think that's just a really false toxic ideology. And we should be encouraging women to speak up um, and say no when something happening to them is, is bad for them. Um, it, it, that's something that I think will encourage better mental health as well. Just ideas, empowerment, agency, and confidence. Yeah, I appreciate that because there really is this cultural component of suffering is a natural part of life. Um, and there are religious components of like suffering actually is is a good thing, right? You, you know, it's it's kind of uh, a sacrifice that you're doing. And so um, yeah, resilience can can has a lot of interpretations. And the way that I interpret it, the way that I teach it is resilience is how you can stand strong in face of things you have no control over. Um, And I think, especially within the South Asian community, it's like really honing in on the understanding of, there's a lot that we have control over, Um, especially um, South Asian women who are told that we're supposed to do things a certain way, we're supposed to take certain things. you know, we, we can be free. It's okay to be alone. It's okay. If you don't have children to not have children, it's okay to not be partnered. Um, there are a lot of things that, um, you, you can kind of break those, um, societal and familial expectations, um, and, and still be okay. But sometimes there are situations that we really can't control. And that's when you do have to figure out, okay, how can I take better care of myself in this situation? How can I survive this situation? The different types of support you provide. And there are, um, you try to have South Asian providers and there aren't enough of us. Um, And the reason that I mentioned that as well is that there's a lot of information out there saying that if there's a culture match in your providers that you tend to, um, you know, trust your providers more, you tend to, um, it's more relatable. You tend to stick to, um, that treatment for a little bit longer. Um, so sorry, I started with one question, but I I went back to this. Um, so what, what else is available to, um, to people that are seeking care, especially if they're South Asian, when there might not be a cultural match, you mentioned, um, that, you know, you try to provide, um, 
cultural sense, culturally sensitive care. Um, do you offer any trainings to providers or is there anything um, that you're doing to kind of make that, that connection possible, even if South Asians aren't available to provide care? Yeah. So first I'll say um, all of our advocates are also trained uh, counselors. They're not a uh, experts. So if, if we have a survivor who needs really specialized care, we will refer them to an expert who's trauma-informed, culturally responsive, all of that. But all of our uh, case managers are also all South Asian and or immigrant and also speak South Asian languages because a lot of our survivors don't know English. So we have, we can cover many languages like Bengali, Tamil, Hindi, Urdu, uh, all of the major South Asian languages. Uh, we offer those services in those languages as well, because a lot of times you're more able to just describe what's happening to you and what you need in your most native language so that we do offer. Uh, secondly, we also do offer trainings. So we have our domestic violence advocate trainings and that's designed for really anyone. It can be anyone who has no experience or people who are trying to learn more about that side of work they already do, such as medical providers. Uh, so it's a 40 hour training uh, and it's, it gives you an actual lifelong certification from the state of California. Uh, to work with domestic violence survivors. Uh, and it does include the cultural context, the South Asian context. And we also do presentations as well to different medical providers or different agencies or um, whatever organization uh, needs the kind of the South Asian perspective on domestic violence, because um, as we both already know, it's, it's a unique situation and it does warrant uh, a specific uh, cultural understanding and openness uh, that is often lacking in our communities. And that is why kind of Narika exists, because there were no agencies or organizations that uh, were ex expressly dealing with immigrant populations and or South Asian populations. Uh, and you really do need someone who understands you and your culture who will probably be able to better uh, provide the support that you need as well. Yeah, you know, I didn't even mention the language component. That is a huge barrier. Um, so is there anything, I, I'm going to ask you a bunch of like tip type questions um, to, to help people that are listening be either be able to support or know what to look for. Um, but are there any components that we should be talking about that um, maybe we didn't get into, especially with the intersection of domestic violence, mental health, and then, um, you know, South Asian culture. Yeah, I would say uh, know the signs. Uh, there aren't many because that's that's what's so nefarious about domestic violence is that it happens behind closed doors. And you may never know that your friend is ever experiencing it. She may be exactly the same person in public and then be experiencing a very different life in private behind closed doors. Uh, but still, there are some things that you can look out for. For example, uh, isolationist behavior, are they kind of withdrawing from public life either out of choice or because their abuser is forcing them to? Um, are, are there any signs of physical abuse, for example, like bruises or cuts? Um, oftentimes the abuser will, will hurt them in a way that's not easy to identify. So that's not always you know easy to see, but look out for that. Um, and just in general, just check in with your friends, ask them how they're doing at home, how their partner is treating them, are they happy at home? Um, and if you're a medical provider as well, uh, if you sense any kind of uh, anything that they're trying not to share, or you sense there may be something wrong at home, uh, 
just give them a brochure or something because that's actually a, a way that a lot of our survivors find out about us is they're in the hospital because something's happened at home and uh, the provider is able to recognize that it's possible that abuse is happening and they're able to give them some contact information to Narica and that's happened many many times for us um, and if someone that you know that you care about uh, discloses some abuse, again, make sure to support them as much as possible. Don't ask them why questions. Why didn't you do this? Why are you still in the marriage? Like, why didn't you leave? Um, and help them imagine an alternative reality. Um, ask them questions about what they want to do in their life. So ask them questions that empower them, that um, force them to consider their own agency and their own choices, rather than saying, do this, do that. You should do this. You should do that. Because that, again, that puts you in a position of power in the same way that an abuser is uh, telling them what to do or controlling their behaviors. So instead, uplift them, empower them to make their own decisions, which is what exactly our counselors do. They don't tell you what to do. They will help you make your decisions what you want to do. Yeah, that that is really important, right? You're you're trying to provide an open and safe space where they trust you, um, and not where you are going to be controlling them. Um, so you know, you you mentioned that it's typically um, the the male that's the abuser in in uh, in relationships, and so. What are some differences or even signs to look for when um, it might be um, the, the female in the relationship that's the abuser if you're supporting um, a male or maybe even um, same-sex relationships? Yeah, that's a really good question. Yeah, I would say 97% plus. It, it is exactly that. Uh, men abusing women but there are there's a small minority um of non-binary or same sex or um women against men uh so some things to look out for first of all men are much less likely to report because there's almost this like weird sense that like you're less of a man because oh like your your wife controls you or that, that's like a silly joke in our communities or it's like like who wears the pants in the relationship like oh there's the woman or the wife is controlling you so that's that's first of all a pretty toxic ideology that we should get rid of in our in the kind of I guess locker room talk or whatever conversations we have um, for LGBT communities uh, it's quite common for um, coming out uh, to be held uh, as a kind of uh, power mechanism so uh, threatening to out uh, one's partner for example is very common uh, and, and really uh, a truly devastating kind of uh, control mechanism that an abuser in a same-sex relationship might do. Um, for uh, men, uh, for women abusing men as well, uh, the, sometimes they may abuse, uh, they, may, they may be a little less likely physical abuse, to physically abuse that person, but it's not uncommon. It does happen as well. And so there's this myth that it must be all kind of mind control and manipulation, but there is also physical abuse that can happen there as well. Uh, but I would say all of the usual behaviors still apply. Isolationist behavior, checking in on the person, are they withdrawing from public life? And is uh, their partner saying snide comments or putting them down in front of others? Uh, those are things to all look out for. Thank you. Um, thank you for breaking that down. So you mentioned some questions already um, that we can just kind of check in with how people are doing. I, I think of like, especially with um, the pandemic, I don't ask people how they're doing. Like that's, you know, uh, <laughs> most of the time, none of us are, are more than yeah, okay. Well, fine, right? fine. Yeah, like, we're, no exactly. Yeah. Um, so there, uh, you know, I ask questions like, how are you sleeping and are you eating well, things like that. So are there any 
any specific questions or types of questions that can kind of lead to somebody maybe opening up about what's going on at home? Yeah, um, it's, it's difficult to say because uh, it depends on the person and it depends on the situation. They may be very uh, geared up to just reject any question that comes close to home and family life. Um, but you, I would say, how are things going on at home and how is your partner treating you um, are good questions to ask because it, it does kind of address the core question without specifically saying, like, is your partner abusing you, right? Because if you sometimes the word abuse can trigger and be like, no, no, you know, that's not happening. Um, I will also say that it may take kind of repeated check-ins. Um, if you just ask someone, you're not going to get it right away, most likely. Uh, you'll have to keep checking in multiple times. But I think uh, also very common, you don't necessarily have to specifically ask, ask so much as show uh, signs that you care and that you're always there, that, you, that you're good friends with them, that you understand them. And hopefully that may inspire that person to come to you and then disclose what's happening because they may perceive you as the one person who will always trust them no matter what and who always stick with them or stand with them no matter what. Uh, I would say their biggest fear is that they'll just be ostracized and ignored or that nobody cares for them, that they're all alone. So just show indications that you are not like that, that you do care about them no matter what, you'll stand with them. And then they will hopefully come to you for support when they need it. Yeah, that's great. So avoiding saying things like abuse, um, really just kind of being open and letting them know that your door is always open, you're always there, that you're non-judgmental, um, that whatever they need, they're there for you. Are there any other safety things that either should be avoided or that we should um, try to make sure that we're, we're stating? Yes, um, they should always. Uh, so one of the first things our advocates do is uh, come up with a safety plan. And that one of the main items is always have a packed bag that has all of the things that you most need in life just there. And also, secondly, have an alternative place you can stay on short notice, a friend's locate house, for example, or uh, some family member's house that you trust. Um, so that packed bag should include like ba basic food and essentials, medication that you need, and then your documents uh, and some money. Um, anything that your kids need if, and bags for your kids as well, if you have them. Um, and then some things to always be aware of or that an advocate should always be aware of or friend whoever is if there is, uh, if a gun is present in the household because the chances of homicide um, specifically husband, wife, or partner homicide uh, are ex exponentially higher if there's a gun present in the house. Um, so it, knowing whether or not that's, that's in there is really important. Uh, so that way, uh, you know, the police can come if, if there's a situation that's escalating and prevent that from happening. Um, yes, and always make sure they have access to a domestic violence helpline. Uh, multiple ones, uh, Narika, for example, but there's also many other local organizations and national organizations that have them so that uh, you can call someone if you need help. But if it's a crisis situation, like one's uh, physical safety is really threatened, then they should call the police. I was just going to ask because Narika is based in um, the Bay Area. So for people that aren't um, local, um, are there, is there a specific number, obviously 911, if it's, if it's that critical, um, but there, are there any other, um, specific, like maybe national or even things that locally might exist throughout the country? 
Absolutely. So yeah, the National Network to End Domestic Violence or NNEDV has a national toll-free helpline uh, 24-7. And that should be, if you don't know what your local organization might be, that's the one that you should call. If it's not a crisis situation, if it's a crisis situation, call 911. Uh, but if you are, if you know a local organization, um, that that's even better because they will know local resources. They will be able to direct you to a local shelter, for example. Uh, but the NNEDV is also fantastic um, and definitely a good place to go if you're not sure. And what about for um, healthcare providers? Um, so what are some specific things that they can be doing to um, build trust with um, the South Asian community um, and specifically related to domestic violence and mental health? What could they be doing either? How can they educate themselves um, or what do they need to be doing? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say uh, encourage ongoing or recurring meetups. Um, so uh, sometimes what may happen, even at night, is an abuser will call us and then tell us what's happening and then you never hear from them again because either they've decided that they shouldn't be doing that or their abuser has discovered it or something um, or they're just afraid to seek help. Uh, so it'll take time to build trust. So if you can encourage any kind of ongoing or recurring uh, meeting, that would be very helpful. Definitely uh, behaviors and questions that really uh, are empathetic and uh, inspire um, or encourage kind of uh, friendship and kindness um, that help them feel like they're cared for and that, uh, that they can trust you, for example. I would also say be aware of medical abuse. So it's uh, actually fairly common. It's, it's basically when uh, an abuser will refuse to treat some kind of medical condition or injury that a survivor is experiencing as a way of just controlling them and causing pain. So it's, a very, it's basically a passive form of physical abuse, essentially. So even when a survivor might stub their toe or injure themselves uh, or just be sick, the, the abuser may just refuse to, refuse to cover or pay for health care or refuse to help them get, go to a doctor. Uh, so uh, being aware of that and any kind of like ghost injuries or physical abuses that may be present that you may not be able to see but do exist underneath their clothing, perhaps, um, or making sure that um, if they're asking questions like, or they're afraid to uh, show their identity or their healthcare card because maybe their abuser is tracking the coverage and will find out if they seek medical attention despite their wishes. Um, these are kind of signs that maybe someone at home disapproves of them being there uh, and that there might be abuse and then, you know, slide that brochure. <laughs> So you mentioned that Narika actually does um, trainings for um, healthcare providers. So is that only locally or do you offer those services nationwide or maybe even, I don't know if internationally? So the trainings are for everyone, but we do, we have done um, like private trainings for specific groups before, but usually it's open to everyone, but that usually always includes medical providers. Um, but it is virtual, so it's open to anyone and you can attend anywhere. It does provide certification for the state of California specifically, but you can still attend and learn. Uh, it's not as if you won't be able to utilize that information elsewhere because most of the information is useful elsewhere. Uh, it's just that when it comes to things like legislation and policy and the specific things that a survivor uh, has legal access to in California, it's a California perspective. But we do talk a lot about general topics like client services and safety planning and needs assessments and cultural responsiveness um, that will relate to anyone no matter where you're from. So yes, open to all and all virtual.
Yeah. And, you know, I don't think we talked too much about your legal services, but there's a lot of, there's a lot involved um, with some supporting somebody through um, domestic violence, right? It's um, not just the emotional support, um, the financial support and financial footing, but there's a lot of legal stuff, especially um, those that are legally married, right? To And um, you mentioned the um, immigration situation. So you, um, Narika also offers legal assistance. Yeah, so we we don't ourselves have our own attorney, but we do have several strong relationships with pro bono family law attorneys and immigration attorneys, um, as well as other legal clinics that are specifically set up for our survivors and other survivors of domestic violence. Uh, so yeah, the legal concerns are usually a restraining order, uh, which we help them fill out um, uh, whatever they need um, for that, as well as um, there's divorce and custody. And then the other huge piece is immigration, because as I mentioned, there's a serious issue where survivors really struggle to separate from their abuser because that's their basically ticket to remain in the U.S., they fear that if they leave uh, the abuser, they'll, they'll lose their status and get deported, which is not true, by the way. There, there are legal recourses su such that you can uh, maintain your status and remain in the U.S., thankfully. Uh, thanks to actually President Biden and the, the VAWA Act, um, that you there will be no issue if you are separating from your abuser. You can uh, get your green card still and remain. However, there are still lots of immigration-related abuses that an abuser will do. For example, like leave you stranded in your home country or abandon you somewhere or file for divorce while you're in your home country. Uh, such that you can't return to the U.S. Uh, or refuse to renew your documents or refuse to apply for a green card on your behalf. Uh, so there's a lot of very serious immigration legal issues that arise uh, that we do help with um, that are quite common, especially in the South Asian community. Yeah, that's, I mean, that makes me think of how much either misinformation or lack of information there is out there um, for people um, seeking support. So this is, this is, I think it's kind of a tough question, but, and you've answered a, a lot of it already, but um, as far as getting people um, the information that they need or access to the resources they need, as well as um, breaking down the stigma so that we can encourage more people to get the support that they need, um, I guess, what advice um, would you have or suggestions would you have for anyone that's listening? Like, what can we be doing? tell people about us, just tell people that we exist. Uh, a lot of the times the survivors that call us, it's not like they even found us online. It's a friend or family member who told them about us and a friend or family member told them about it. And then a friend or family member told them about it. So it's really uh, the spider web network of friends and family in the Bay Area, especially in a tight-knit immigration community that can really uh, gear up and support someone. Uh, so just tell people that we exist, uh, even just one line. Oh, I've heard about this cool organization and they do this. Um, do you know of anyone who may need help? So that's one way is just talking about it. Um, you can join our team, volunteer for us. Uh, you can help post the restroom flyer that I mentioned earlier in your grocery store on your usual grocery run. Um, and you can just join us at our events, uh, talk with us, uh, speak out about these issues and conferences and panels, and especially to your colleagues, like go to your company because they have a lot of power, especially in the tech industry in the Bay Area. Uh, they have money and power and influence, and they have the tools to also help address these, especially when it comes to tech abuse. Uh, so talk to them, talk to your colleagues about donating, about um, volunteering, about talking to their own families and then speak up in your own families and communities when there's, uh, again, jokes, comments, whatever it may be. 
so that you can make sure that people are aware that you don't stand with it and that this is a cultural change that needs to happen. And, um, you know, one thing I, we didn't talk about is with COVID, um, needs have changed as well. I, I'm not sure if you did this prior to the pandemic, but Narika also has a food pantry where you're you're handing out food. Is that something that is new um, because of COVID or were you doing this before? Yeah. Yeah. So something that we pride ourselves on is that it's a very survivor centric approach. So we really listen to our clients. We ask them, you know, every year, anytime there's a new significant shift like COVID, what do you need specifically? Like what has changed for you and what do you need, most need help with? And for a lot of our survivors, it was three things. It was food, like just basic needs that I just need to survive. Uh, so we launched our food justice program and that provides weekly distribution of uh, household items, essentials and food uh, and other groceries. So we distribute that on a weekly basis and then also host food drives just to the community of usually women in need. Uh, anyone can attend and just it's almost a month's worth of supplies. So it just keeps people just stable at the very basic level. The second thing uh, is. Uh, just basic financial assistance as well. So we became a lot more uh, open wallet basically last year. Just our survivors were really like, I just, I've lost my job. I need help. I need to pay rent, all of these things. So we, we assisted them a lot more with that. A, a lot more of our money went to direct financial assistance. And then also uh, our tech abuse program. So a lot of our survivors, even though they were at home with their abusers, if they left, their abuser would still follow them online or harass them online. So you may get a physical restraining order, right, against a person, uh, but that restraining order doesn't prevent them from texting you constantly or from tracking your location or installing stalkerware on your phone um, or just, you know, calling you all the time and asking for photos or abusing you uh, through your device. Uh, so we're launching our tech abuse program, which is uh, raising awareness on the issue and hosting webinars, and it'll eventually turn into a toolkit for survivors uh, who may be experiencing these issues. Yeah, I mean, you offer so many services and it feels like you're touching on every area um, that any survivor could possibly um, need or seek support in. So how are ways that people can support Narika? Obviously, they can just donate. Um, can people like volunteer kind of one off or their commitments just in general? How can people su support the work that Narika is doing? Of course, there are tons of ways to help. Um, the easiest, as I mentioned, is uh, talking with your company. So getting us on your corporate uh, donation matching system so that every dollar you donate is matched uh, or donating yourself is if your company doesn't have that infrastructure. That money goes directly towards like if it's $20, that's, that's an Uber ride to a shelter, for example, for a survivor. Many of our survivors don't actually drive or own cars. So if you donate $25, that's going... Um, that's helping someone find shelter. And that's like, that's like four Starbucks drinks right there. Um, you can volunteer, absolutely. So uh, we have a lot of volunteers who support our food justice program and just sponsor grocery items or help distribute uh, food on an as needed basis. Um, there's also lots of virtual volunteer opportunities. You can host an event with us, like what Sheila's doing with us, which we, we're so excited about. Uh, host an event with us, uh, help us um, launch new programs and run our programs, like our new youth program, which is coming up, or attend our domestic violence advocate training. Because if you do that uh, with your certification, you can actually support our helpline and even do some case management uh, with our clients. Um, so that, that's a really great way to really frontline help the clients. 
And then lastly, just attend our events and speak out on these issues. Uh, that's just a very easy way to contribute to the movement. And share, right? You're yeah. all over social media. So it's really easy to reshare any of those posts. Is there anything else that you want to talk about or that um, we might have missed? Yeah, I guess I'll say um, the impact that COVID has had is not ending anytime soon. Um, I'm double vaccinated. Life will start to return to normal. Uh, but this does not mean that the shadow pandemic, as we call it, which is really the domestic violence pandemic that we've experienced, is ending anytime soon. Uh, the ramifications will continue to endure for a long time. The economic impacts from loss of employment, uh, the increase in drug abuse and alcohol abuse, uh, the severe mental health crisis, and the the ramifications of spending so much time at home in lockdown with your abuser, uh, those have long-term effects and we don't expect these numbers to go down anytime soon. Uh, so we still need your support and um, it's still existing behind doors as much as we can start going outside soon, hopefully, for um, and see the end of this pandemic. Uh, just remember that uh, this situation has always existed for centuries before the pandemic and will continue to after. So it really is on us to make a difference, to make an impact, uh, to ask after each other, check in with each other and think um, more about how everything impacts uh, survivors of abuse, um, no matter our situation. Thank you for pointing that out. I mean, you know, just because the pandemic hopefully is um, nearing a bit of an end, especially for us in the United States, definitely not the same um, for the rest of the world, especially what's happening in India yeah, and Nepal right now, um, that this has been going on for a long time and it will keep going on. So we can't, you know, we can't pretend like it's not happening in homes when, even when we get our freedoms back. So we have to keep talking about it. Um, we have to keep um, supporting these issues, supporting um, our friends and even strangers when we can. Um, so how can people either seek support or be able to provide support to Narika? Just call our helpline and you can call on behalf of a friend as well. That happens a lot. Uh, you can call our helpline or email us at narika.org. Narika uh, all of that information is on our website. Our, our helpline is 1-800-215-7308. Um, just give us a call. One of our advocates will speak with you, assess the situation, give you advice, uh, whether you're a survivor or a friend of a survivor. Um, and don't hesitate. Even if you're not sure if what you're experiencing is abuse, even if uh, you, you're, you think, oh, maybe it's just a toxic behavior or whatever, uh, it's totally fine to just call us and we'll figure it out together. Um, and if you are even, not even local to the Bay Area, you can still call us. We do help people nationally uh, because there are a lot of places that do not have support for this. Um, and even internationally, it, we're not going to ever not answer the phone. So just call us if you're ever in doubt, no matter where you are. And you're on different social media. So how else can yes. people find you, especially if they want to know about events um, and how they can support you? Yes. So we are on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, on LinkedIn, uh, and also on TikTok. Just started. <laughs> uh, but yes, on any of those mediums, you can see our content, see more information about upcoming events, uh, raise awareness, engage with us. Um, and we actually also have a new Clubhouse series uh, that's just started and our next topic uh, next Thursday on the 20th um, is going to be on mental health um, in the South Asian community. So I'm really excited for that. Um, if you're interested, you can find information about that on our social media. Okay, and I'm gonna make sure that 
all, everything that you talked about that has a link to it, any of the, the helplines, I will post all of that. Um, <laughs> I'll post all of that um, in the comments or show notes. And so on Sunday, May 23rd at 11 a.m. Pacific time, um, we are going to be doing an active relaxation. Again, that's free and all are welcome. If you are able to, we would encourage you to donate. Um, and so thank you so much, Sonia, for joining me. And thank you so much for taking the time to, to break down um, all that, that we should know and how we can support people experiencing domestic violence. Um, so my information, if you want to um, learn more about what I'm doing or get in touch with me, or maybe even um, if you have any um, comments or suggestions for um, the podcast, my website is otbayarea.com. So please do like and share. And again, comment if you have any questions or if you want to get in touch with us. Thank you.